This is section thirty seven of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, the San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August eighteen sixty four, part one. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August second, eighteen sixty four. Somber festivities. All day yesterday, the cars were carrying colored people of all shades and tints and of all sizes and both sexes out to Hayes Park to celebrate the anniversary of the emancipation of their race in England's West Indian possessions years ago. They rode the fiery untamed steeds that are kept for equestrian duty in the grounds. They practiced pistol-shooting, but abstained from destroying the targets. They swung, they promenaded among the shrubbery, they filled themselves up with beer and sandwiches, all just as the thing is done there by white folks, and they essayed to dance, but the effort was not a brilliant success. It was interesting to look at, though, for languid, slow-moving, pretentious, impressive, solemn, and excessively high-toned and aristocratic dancing commend us to the disenthralled North American negro when there is no restraint upon his natural propensity to put on airs. White folks of the upper stratum of society pretend to walk through quadrilles in a stately way, but these saddle-colored young ladies can discount them in the slow-movement evidence of high gentility. They don't know much about dancing, but they let on magnificently, as if the mazes of a quadrille were their native element and they move serenely through it and tangle it hopelessly and inextricably with an unctuous satisfaction that is surpassingly pleasant to witness by the middle of the afternoon about two hundred darkies were assembled at the park or rather to be precise there was not much darky about it either for if the prevailing lightness of tint was worth anything as evidence the noble miscegenationist had been skirmishing considerably among them in days gone by. It was expected that the colored race would come out strong in the matter of numbers, and otherwise, in the evening, when a grand ball was to be given and last all night. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 2, 1864 Enlisted for the War If ever you want to find Ellen Quinn, or Gentle Julia, or Mary Holt, or Haiti Leonard, or Annie Berry, please call at the county jail upstairs. Mary Holt has spent most of her time there for the past fourteen years, it is said, and the most inexperienced of this company of choice spirits, gin, has sojourned there chiefly for the last three years. Mary Holt has just enlisted again for the county jail for fifty days, and next time she comes out, she will probably enlist for the war. Following is the record of service of these old soldiers for the past twelve months. Out of the 365 days, Ellen Quinn spent 240 in the county jail, Gentle Julia 210 in the station house and county jail together, Mary Holt 190 in the county jail alone, Haiti Leonard 106 in the county jail, Annie Berry 111 in the county jail. The balance of the year these fellows have spent in the station-house, for the most part, for they suffer arrest and confinement there three times, 
with about two days' imprisonment for each arrest, before they can pass muster and get into the county jail. The veteran Mary Holt commenced fighting the prisons in 1849 or 50. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 2, 1864. Refused Greenbacks. Last Saturday, eleven inspectors in the barge office of the Custom House received a call from the poll tax collector, and they tendered their indebtedness in the kind of money their salaries are paid in, greenbacks. The collector said he was not allowed to take anything but coin, and the inspectors said they would suffer imprisonment before they would pay in anything but greenbacks. The soundness of this position will be appreciated when you come to reflect that they only get four dollars a day, anyhow, and when that sum is mashed into greenbacks at present rates, it only amounts to about a dollar and a half a day. Now, estimating their actual living expenses at a dollar and forty-five cents a day, and it cannot fall below that while they continue to eat anything, how long would it take one of those inspectors to pay this oppressive poll tax in coin out of the clear profits of his labor? Why, it would take two months and three weeks, as nearly as you could come at it, as the amount of the tax is four dollars. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 3, 1864. Attempted Suicide. Last night, a young man by the name of John Ferguson went to the drug store of Mr. Riley on the corner of Mission and Second Streets, and asked for strychnine, as he said, to kill a dog. He got ten grains. He went into Mission Street, took the poison, and was soon met by a friend to whom he said that he was sick, had taken poison, and was dying. A doctor was called at once, who administered mustard and warm water, which caused nausea and vomiting, which relieved him by freeing the stomach of the poison. Hopes are entertained of his recovery. The cause of this attempt upon his own life is said to be depression from loss of employment and pecuniary difficulties. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 3, 1864. A Movement in Buckeye. How's stocks this morning? Movement in Buckeye! This little characteristic salutation, a few days since, prefaced a breach of the peace on Montgomery Street thus. Mr. Green, who is learned in the matter of stocks, was authorized to purchase fifty shares of Buckeye at four dollars and a half. Mr. Jasinski, also talented in the same line, had a quantity for sale at five dollars, the same having previously been purchased by his principal at twenty-one dollars, showing conclusively that stocks are sometimes up, and at other times very much down. Mr. G., the author of the second remark in the above brief dialogue, said he would see whether his principal would give five dollars, and departed for that purpose. Mr. J. waited expectantly for a long time, say a matter of several hours, but in the interval saw G. a number of times, and was by him informed that the person who wanted the stock was for the time being distinctly invisible to the naked eye. During this invisibility, Buckeye depreciates, and the seller, becoming impatient, at last insists that Mr. Green should take the stock at five dollars himself, without reference to his principal, laying down the proposition that the latter gentleman had inaugurated the transaction in the character of principal himself, and that he held him for it. Mr. Green took issue on this point, and declared that there had been no purchase. Mr. J. said there had, 
Mr. G. said there hadn't. The mutual contradiction grew positive, with expletives and profane adjectives amounting to a mutual impeachment of veracity, upon which Mr. Green smote the countenance of the other broker, thereby breaking up the negotiations and breaking the peace at the same time. A blow at sea may be a breeze, a gale, or a tempest, but a blow on land is very likely to be an assault and battery. Of this latter kind was the blow given by Mr. Green, and in consequence thereof he was yesterday ordered by Judge Shepard to appear this morning for sentence. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 3, 1864 More Stage Robbers and Their Confederates Captured under Sheriff Hall, of Santa Clara County, and Messrs. Hume and Van Eaton, under and deputy sheriffs of El Dorado County, arrived from San Jose by the cars yesterday evening with the following splendid haul of Placerville stage robbers captured by them in the vicinity of San Jose early yesterday morning. Henry Jarbo, George Cross, J. A. Robinson, Wallace Clendenning, Joseph Gamble, Joseph Jordan, Thomas Freer, James Freer, John Ingraham, Gately, and Hodges, eleven. Sheriff Hall also brought down another of the robber gang named Wilson, whom he caught a week ago. He has been upon the track of all these men, and has been spotting them for the past three months. The confession of young Glasby confirmed his suspicions concerning them. The prisoners are farmers, for the most part, and resided round about San Jose. They are all constitutional Democrats. They are not all charged with having taken part in the stage robbery, but some of them did, and the others were members of the robber organization and accessories to the robbery before and after the fact. The organization dates back to the 1st of May, and the process of forming it was under way a good while before that. Its object was to raise men for the Confederate service and they were to furnish themselves with equipments and supplies by guerrilla practice on the highway. Its ramifications are supposed to be very extensive, and they are known to have received aid and comfort from many prominent citizens. Some of the men arrested are well-to-do farmers. We are told by a resident of Santa Clara County that the prisoner Robinson is a brother-in-law of the editor of the Stockton Democratic organ, The Beacon. It is not known whether the men recruited for the Confederate service were to do duty only in this state or elsewhere. The headquarters of the gang were at the house of a man named Hodges, who lives in the mountains east of San Jose. The six who robbed Wells Fargo and Company's stage started from Hodges. Under Sheriff Hall arrested this man at the Willows, near San Jose, early yesterday morning, where he had unsuspectingly come on business. Two of the prisoners in this new hall are believed to have taken a hand in the late robbery of Langton's Express. Grant, Baker, and Captain Ingram of the gang have escaped and left for parts unknown. Baker and Ingram were kept in hiding for a day or two by one Green Duff at his house near San Jose, and the latter furnished Baker a horse to escape on. Mr. Hall arrested a man at Duff's house yesterday morning. The man is a good constitutional Democrat. The rumor prevalent here yesterday that there was a terrific fight in San Jose the night before with the stage robbers was groundless. There was no fight.
Colonel Jackson telegraphed for 1,000 rounds of ball cartridge yesterday morning in order to be prepared for an emergency, perhaps, in case one should arise, and the militia of San Jose were called together the night before and provided with a signal for the same purpose. They went further than was required and lay on their arms in anticipation of trouble. Out of these ominous circumstances the rumor we have spoken of probably grew. Sheriff Hall also brought up with him last night three state prisoners, viz. Henry Hoffman, Charles Buford, and Antonio Leva, all sentenced for one year for grand larceny. He will take them to San Quentin today, and the El Dorado officers will depart with the Secesh stage robbers on the Sacramento boat this evening. No blood was spilled in arresting the robber gang. One posse of men under Sheriff Hall and another under Officers Hume and Van Eaton left San Jose before daylight yesterday morning and traveled in different directions. The former made six of the arrests, the latter five. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 3, 1864. Democratic Meeting at Hayes Park. The Democratic Indignation Meeting at Hayes Park last evening amounted to a very short row of small potatoes, with few in the hill. The whole number present certainly did not exceed four hundred, of whom at least one-half were Union men, or supporters of the administration, drawn thither by curiosity and the cars. The meeting was called to order by Colonel Phelps. Vociferous calls for Berea Brown brought him to the platform, and he delivered himself of a few remarks substantially as follows. Gentlemen, we have assembled here to-night as American citizens. Great noise in the hall here, and the speaker's voice was inaudible for several moments. We meet here to offer no opposition to the government, but we meet here to discuss the question of our rights as citizens. We ask for no rights, but what each individual is entitled to, to do as we would be done by under all circumstances. At the same time, we do not propose to surrender our rights as American citizens. Applause. This, I understand, is the object of the meeting. The first business, gentlemen, is to hear the report of the committee appointed to draft resolutions. The following resolutions were then handed Mr. Brown, who had previously been appointed chairman of the meeting, which were as follows. We omit giving the preamble at length, as it all amounted simply to a renewal of fidelity to the constitutions of the state and the united states and a declaration of the intention to maintain the laws and yield a willing support to all just and legally constituted authorities in the administration thereof etc and to the best of our ability to support whatever good citizens may rightfully do to maintain domestic peace and promote general welfare that they demand nothing but a uniform and faithful administration of the laws, and no privilege but what is clearly and indisputably guaranteed by the constitutions of our government. It also declared that, where there is no law, there is no freedom, and contained the usual declaiming against the abridgment of the freedom of speech and the press. Resolved that we regard with alarm all exercise of power by the United States government or its agents, not specifically delegated to that government, and in derogation of the reserved rights of states, and in abridgment of the constitutional guarantees to the people, as tending to central despotism and the subjugation of popular liberty. Resolved that, 
whenever through fear of spies or informers or the power of military commanders to arrest and imprison american citizens they shall be deterred from peaceably assembling together and freely expressing their approval or disapproval of measures of public policy the point is reached beyond which submission merges the free man into a slave resolved that the spotless reputation of bishop kavanaugh and the well-known patriotism and devotion of charles l weller to the constitution and the union justify the belief that the arrest of these gentlemen was procured by the perjury of mercenary spies and informers or by persons actuated solely by personal malice and we can but express the sentiments of all honorable men in denouncing the employment of those degraded wretches an offense to civilization and a disgrace to humanity after the passage of the resolutions the band discoursed a national air dr wozencraft was then introduced by the chairman his speech was simply a rehash of all the whinings and hypocrisy of copperheads since the conflict began he had much to say about the imminence of our danger of becoming involved in scenes such as are now being witnessed in the southern states from a determination on the part of large numbers to resist with force the arbitrary and unconstitutional measures that were being inaugurated in our midst the record of the democratic party is but a record of the nation's power and glory while that of the abolition party is a record of her shame and disintegration he said there are but two parties the democratic party whose mission is to sustain the union and the abolition party which is seeking to destroy it there is no hope for union peace and prosperity only through a conservative democratic administration the north was unanimous in their opposition to the idea of secession to the support of the government in suppressing the rebellion there was not a dissenting voice until the war was made one of subjugation abolition and confiscation democrats were law-abiding and constitutional people and the present supporters of the administration are the secessionists jefferson davis and his followers are simply their allies in the work of destroying the government the speaker predicted that so soon as we get control of the federal government which by the help of god we hope to do at the coming election they the republicans will declare that the pacific states will withdraw and form themselves into a separate republic here he ran an extract from a speech of mr seward's and continued for about twenty minutes in the usual strain of his ilk at the close of his speech the band made more music after which zachary montgomery of marysville appeared on the stand he commenced by saying that he would speak from the record thereby meaning that he would read his speech from a manuscript which he did they had assembled there to consider how they should preserve the liberties of the people of california and avert the horrors of civil war then followed the inevitable tirade against the measures of the administration and its appointed agents for suppressing treason and taking seditious persons into custody he said that there is no use to try to disguise the fact that there is danger of civil war in this state and intimated that a certain party chafing under the discipline of abraham lincoln was on the verge of outbreak and the smothered volcano might burst out at any moment 
and that we were nearer the scenes which our brethren in the older states were now witnessing than many might imagine there were but two roads before us the one leads to civil war the other to peace he declared in so many words that the administration were determinedly pursuing the former road its acts were all in direct violation of the constitution and every blow struck at that instrument only drove us deeper into the danger of civil war and its attendant horrors he spoke as did wozencraft like a man who was in the secret of an organization existing in our midst with the sole object of resisting by force and arms all disciplinary police or administrative measures which in their estimation might be deemed unconstitutional or oppressive and they are to be the judges like the other speakers he also referred to them in terms which might without much distortion be construed into an approval of their patriotic purpose the speaker dwelt at great length on this danger hidden from unprivileged eyes and ready to create a storm a general disruption in our very midst ere we were aware of the least danger in a word if general mcdowell arrests any more noisy and treasonable babblers or insidious enemies to the government why we may look out for guns and a fight mr montgomery's enunciation was very impassioned and he seemed extremely fearful that the infatuation of the administration would yet inevitably and at no distant period transfer to our own california all the horrors of the eastern battlefields in conclusion he conjured all both republicans and democrats to respect and obey the constitution and the laws under it as the only means of averting the terrible catastrophe to the brink of which we have been brought the only pacificator of that secret element that is now only resting in a temporary lull while preparing for the great and sudden effort which is to follow the next persistent attempt of the administrative authorities to enforce an arbitrary measure after a little music to soften down the lion which montgomery had roused within himself todd robinson was presented and with all the blandishments of an adept at honey-fugling he proceeded to tell the people of the wrongs they were suffering at the hands of the present administration he also knows something of their hidden danger this secret steel trap which is to catch all infernal abolitionists and send them to perdition without benefit of clergy he prefaced his speech by stating the fact that he was born under the behests of freedom and held no right nor privilege by the tenure of any man's will a recapitulation of his speech would fall on the ear much like the repetition for the thousandth time of an old threadbare story every californian knows todd robinson by heart and nobody believes anything he says we left while he was speaking in company with a good democrat who said he wasn't going to listen to such a damned rascal as todd robinson though he rather favored some of the other speakers he couldn't go todd robinson so we all departed and the meeting shortly after broke up with the close of robinson's speech the san francisco daily morning call august fourth eighteen sixty four recovered the young man john ferguson whose attempt to poison himself by strychnine we recorded in yesterday morning's call is beyond danger this gratifying result is due to the exertions of dr de castro 
who was summoned after the first-called physician had abandoned the case and declared recovery impossible. The doctor remained with the patient until the effects of the poison had been completely subdued. Ferguson, we understand, is a molder by trade, and was lately in the employ of Ira P. Rankin. He lost his situation through no fault of his own, but simply because, with others of his craft, he asked an advance of fifty cents per day on his wages to meet increased expenses of living. For this presumption he was thrown out of employment, and it weighed upon his spirits to the extent of suicide. With some money-getters fifty cents have more importance than many lives. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 4, 1864 Fruit Swindling Last Saturday morning a man named Cheeseman, proprietor of a fruit store at the corner of Market and Second Streets, purchased quantities of fruit from different dealers, and in the afternoon, after taking an inventory of his wares, sold out his whole establishment for one thousand dollars. In order to avert suspicion, he paid a month's advance on his room rent on Friday, and conducted himself in all respects as if he had made up his mind to remain in San Francisco a century. However, notwithstanding his subtle diplomacy, his creditors began to suspect him of an intention to defraud them, and when the places which knew him once got to knowing him no more, shortly they grew alarmed and fell to searching for him. They sought him from Saturday night until Tuesday, and finally found him. He began to play himself for an honest man at once, and declared his willingness to pay his debts. They took him to Justice Cornwall's office, and made him disgorge the money he had with him, seven hundred and fifty dollars, after which, by authority of a writ served for that purpose, they submitted him to a rigid examination. The seven hundred and fifty dollars was deposited in court. He went there yesterday morning with his lawyer, and tried to substitute greenbacks for the amount, but the judge refused to permit it, and said it must remain as it was for distribution among the creditors. Suits have been commenced against Cheeseman by those who loved him and trusted him, and got burnt at it. They do not love him so much now. He owes about twelve hundred dollars for fruit, and six hundred dollars borrowed money. His indebtedness for fruit is distributed among a large number of dealers, in bills ranging from three dollars up to two hundred and thirty dollars. San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 4, 1864 Otium cum dignitate. Secretary Chase's private offices at Washington are fitted with Axminster carpets, gilded ceilings, velvet furniture, and other luxurious surroundings which go to hedge about a cabinet minister with a dignity quite appalling to the unaccustomed outsider. Five minutes after a custom-house clerk had read this item, and with the recollection of it still upon him, he was paid his monthly salary in greenbacks, and the consequence was he lost his temper, and became profane to a degree approaching lunacy. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 5, 1864 Soldier Murdered by a Monomaniac Escape and Subsequent Arrest of the Murderer Just before three o'clock yesterday morning, a soldier named Simon Kennedy while under the influence of a temporary hallucination, killed a fellow-soldier named Fitzgerald, who was confined in the guardhouse with him, at Black Point, by stabbing the unfortunate man twelve or fifteen times with a bayonet. 
the shrieks of the struggling victim attracted the attention of the sentinel who opened the door when the murderer rushed out and escaped in the darkness followed by three or four terrified prisoners captain winder turned out his whole force to pursue kennedy but they found neither him nor any trace of him save a bloody towel under the bank near the bensley waterworks where he had evidently washed the blood from his clothing about seven o'clock a soldier arrived here with a message from captain winder to chief burke announcing the murder and the latter left at once for black point after giving orders for half a dozen members of the police force to mount and follow him he also requested captain van vost of the provost department to detail an equal number of mounted men to aid in the search for kennedy which request was promptly complied with arrived at black point the chief procured a description of kennedy and acquainted himself with his habits and antecedents he was told that the man was a lunatic and from the fact of his having wit enough about him to guard against detection by washing himself it was evident that he was not stupidly mad at any rate further inquiries elicited the information that kennedy had requested several times lately to be taken to father cotter in vallejo street and had once been there a day or two ago in charge of a soldier the chief thought it possible that he might have gone there after his escape and sent officers clark and hoyt to ascertain if such were the case the surmise proved correct and father cotter was at once relieved of his dangerous guest and dangerous enough he was too as he still had his bayonet with him bloody and bent by the murderous thrusts inflicted with it upon the body of fitzgerald the best information concerning this tragedy goes to show that kennedy is a sane man upon all subjects except one that of hanging he is quiet and sensible enough until halters and scaffolds are mentioned and then he becomes a madman some of the causes of this are recent and some date far back in the past he is an extraordinary swimmer and it is said he once swam the mississippi at a point where it was more than a mile and a half wide and his bare head being exposed so long to the burning rays of the sun the strength and vigor of his brain were impaired by it and at intervals since then he has seemed a little flighty he enlisted in davis street here and was sent with his company to alcatraz where they remained some time and were finally transferred to black point while at alcatraz kennedy was swimming in the bay with a comrade upon one occasion when the latter was seized with cramps and was drowned the men used to tell kennedy he murdered his comrade and that he would be hanged for it they kept it up until finally the poor wretch got to brooding over the fate predicted for him until he began to suspect his brother soldiers of an intention to hang him he went twice to his captain for protection against them a day or two ago at black point the soldiers pestered him again about his chances of being hanged and he says the captain put him in the guardhouse for safe keeping the supposition is that during the night the horrors came upon him that his fellow prisoners were going to hang him and he seized the bayonet and fought desperately to save himself kennedy told us what he knew about the murder but his statements were confused and he said he did not recollect much about it he only knew that three or four men came in the guardhouse to hang him and said they were going to do it at once one of them seized and tried to choke him and he snatched a bayonet from the wall where it was hanging above a dark-colored cap and struck out wildly with it in self-defense he was not certain whether he hit anybody 
but he thought he did. Afterward, he said it was likely he took the bayonet away from the man who was trying to choke him, and then he showed wounds on his hands, as if he had a vague notion that they were evidence of how he came into possession of the weapon. His person and his clothing were as black as a coal-heaver's. He said he changed his clothes on his way to town, and left his uniform lying in the road. If he did, the latter was not found. When speaking of the murder, Kennedy gazes upon the visitor with a fixed, vacant stare, and looks like a man who is absorbed in trying to recollect something. The body of Fitzgerald lay at the coroner's office yesterday. The breast, shoulders, stomach, hip, and arms were covered with little triangular red spots where the bayonet had entered. The inquest will be held today, so we were informed. The murderer and his victim were both members of Company D, 3rd Artillery. Fitzgerald was a married man. His widow resides in this city. Since the above was written, a soldier in the regular army has informed us how the bayonet happened to be in the guardhouse within reach of a prisoner popularly considered to be insane. He says Captain Mears makes his prisoners do guard duty, and after they are relieved, their instructions are to take their muskets to the guard-room and clean them during confinement. He further says the members of Fitzgerald Company are incensed at this conduct of permitting deadly weapons to be carried within reach of the lunatic imprisoned with their comrade. He says that when a prisoner does guard duty, it is usual for a non-commissioned officer to go with him and see that he cleans his musket at the quarters, and leaves it there, and then takes him back to be locked into the guard-house, unarmed. The soldier says Kennedy first attacked a man named MacDonald with the bayonet, and then assaulted Fitzgerald, who was asleep at the time. When he attacked MacDonald, he first put his hand on his breast and asked him if he had a heart, and where it was situated, and then, without waiting for the desired information, made a stab at him. It was a wretched piece of business to let a deadly weapon be taken into a guard-room where a man in Kennedy's condition was confined, and unmilitary people yesterday were wondering that weapons should be placed within reach of prisoners under any circumstances. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 6, 1864 Another obscene picture-knave captured. He solicits the custom of schoolgirls. A scoundrel named George R. Powers has been detected in the obscene book trade and captured. He has been carrying on the trade after a fashion of his own. Over the signature of Mrs. Amelia Barstow, he writes chatty, familiar letters to young girls in the California seminaries, soliciting patronage for his infamous books and pictures. He made a mistake, though, when he addressed the following epistle to a schoolgirl of fourteen years of age for her home teachings had not been of a character to enable her to appreciate it, and she sent it at once to her father. From him it passed to Judge Coon, who handed it to Chief Burke to be disposed of. The chief took a lively enough interest in the matter to take Officer Hess from his regular duties in the police court and keep him on the track of Mrs. Barstow for a week and a half, with Officer Pike to assist him. We suppress the name of the young lady, and that of the school she belongs to, of course. San Francisco, July twenty-first, 1864. Miss I have just received from New York a large number of the most delightful books you can imagine. To refined young ladies of an amorous temperament they are just the thing. 
for five dollars sent to me through the post-office in two separate enclosures of two dollars and a half each I will forward you two different volumes, each containing five tinted engravings. Accompanying the package will also be a beautiful life photograph entitled blank. The strictest secrecy will be observed, which may be heightened by your transmitting a fictitious address, in case you reply to Mrs. Amelia Barstow. We suppress the title of dear Amelia's life photograph as being somewhat too suggestive. Reporter. Officer Hess suggested the policy of writing an answer to Amelia's note, and getting it sent through the post-office to her, as coming from the young girl she had addressed. He framed the following note, putting in punctuation marks with great liberality where they did not belong, and leaving them out where they did, and mimicking schoolgirl simplicity of phraseology and proneness to tautology with great ingenuity. The chief, having approved of it, a lady copied it in the microscopic chirography of Suite 14, and it was ready for mailing, as set forth here below. We suppress the girl's name and that of the post-office. Blank, July 27, 1864. Mrs. Amelia Barstow. Dear Madam, I received your letter which you sent on the 21st of this month, and I am glad, for I have been wishing for something nice to read for a long time. Father has not given me much money this month, and I cannot send this time the amount you say, but if you will send me one book by sending two dollars and a half, please write and tell me so, and by return mail I will send it. A number of the girls in my class wants some books also, and if you will send one book for two dollars and a half, some four or five others will send for some also. Please direct to Charles Harris, for if directed to a Miss or Mrs., some of the teachers may get the letter. Yours truly, blank. The letter was put into the hands of Postmaster Perkins, who at once entered into the work of entrapping the miserable Mrs. Barstow with as much alacrity and earnestness as if the insulted girl had been his own child. He enclosed the decoy letter in a department envelope to the postmaster of blank, with instructions to postmark and send it back through the mail to Mrs. Amelia Barstow at once. He also instructed the post-office clerks to give Officer Hess and his assistant every facility for corralling the masculine miscreant, who was doubtless passing himself for a woman in his nefarious correspondence. No female had ever applied for letters under the name of Mrs. Amelia Barstow. The decoy letter came back in due time, and was taken out by Mr. Powers while Mr. Hess was absent at lunch. But the clerk who officiates in the ladies' department at the post-office took such a minute mental photograph of him that the officer had no difficulty in following after and detecting his man in the street from the description given of him. After walking around town for some time, Powers finally opened the letter, read it, and replaced it in his pocket. Hess entered into conversation with him, and in answer to certain questions, the fellow said he had no appointment to meet Mrs. Barstow at any particular place, expected to stumble on her in the street. Said he had no particular occupation, was in the habit of taking her letters from the post office for her. It took him but a short time to discover that he was in the hands of an officer, and then his replies became decidedly noncommittal. 
Hess asked him if he wrote the letter signed Mrs. Aurelia Barstow. Powers said, If I were to say I did, what would be done with me? What could you make out of it? When asked if Mrs. Barstow would come and clear him of suspicion if she knew he was about to suffer for an offense committed by her, he caught at the idea and said she would. The thoughtless numbskull even eagerly wrote her a note which the officer was to deliver to her after accomplishing the hopeless task of finding her. That act furnished the officer all the information he lacked, and enabled him to rest his case. But it ruined the unthinking powers, for, behold, the first words of the note, Mrs. Amelia Barstow, were a perfect facsimile of the name signed to the letter to the schoolgirl, and fully convicted him of being the writer of it. Powers will be tried this morning for offering to sell obscene pictures, and perhaps for opening other people's letters, and the chances are that he will be severely dealt with. He deserves it for anyone acquainted with the impressible nature of young girls, shut out from the world and doomed to irksome and monotonous school life, knows the heightened charm and excitement they find in amusements that are contraband, and have to be secured by risky evasions of the rules, and is also aware that a whole school might be corrupted by the circulation among them of a single volume of the lecherous trash dealt in by Mr. Powers. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 6, 1864. The Fitzgerald Inquest. Last evening, in the absence of Coroner Sheldon, Justice Tobin held an inquest at the office of the coroner to inquire into the facts connected with the death of James Fitzgerald, private in Company D, 3rd Artillery, who was killed by a fellow soldier named Kennedy at Black Point early on the morning of Thursday, the 3rd instant. Three witnesses were examined who were on the spot at the time. The facts were substantially as stated in yesterday's call, except that not so much was said about his insanity. A simple statement of the facts adduced on the inquest would be about as follows. About half-past one o'clock on Thursday morning, Fitzgerald was placed in the guardhouse, Kennedy having been there for some time previous. Fitzgerald being without his blankets, Kennedy told him to come and share his. Deceased, however, went and laid down on the floor. The room was almost perfectly dark. About two o'clock in the morning, Fitzgerald got up and went to where one Michael Condole, also under guard, was lying, and whispered in his ear, telling him to turn over. He wanted to feel him. At the same time he drew his hand across Condole's throat. Condole told him to go to his own bunk. Kennedy then placed his hand on Condole's breast, and raised something over him which in the darkness Condole took to be a dagger. He seized it and discovered that it was a bayonet. A struggle commenced, in which Kennedy succeeded in planting a thrust into Condole's arm. He cried out that he was stabbed, and called for a light, but the inmates of the room had become panic-stricken, and crowded off to the corners. In the struggle with Kennedy, Condole kicked him, forcing him over towards the wall. He fell on Fitzgerald, deceased, and commenced stabbing him. Deceased cried out, I'm murdered! The corporal outside, hearing the noise, rushed to the guard-room, and as he opened the door, Kennedy and two other prisoners forced their way out, throwing him down on the ground. He went in with a light and saw deceased lying on the floor in a dying condition. He had twelve wounds on the body and four on the head. Of four of those on the body, penetrating the heart, 
lungs, liver, stomach, and large and small intestines, either one would have produced death. The rest were flesh wounds. One of the fatal wounds was made on the thigh, severing the femoral artery. Kennedy was generally considered a sensible and harmless man, though he seemed rather disposed to shun his comrades. On one occasion, about a month since, while at Alcatraz, he expressed an apprehension that he was going to be hanged. On one or two other occasions he made curious remarks. The day prior to the killing he broke out of the guardhouse and ran down to Captain Winder's quarters. He said he wanted to see a clergyman, and must go to town. He was not generally considered insane, though he had curious ways, and the corporal said he did not think he was altogether right. It was about half-past three o'clock in the morning when Fitzgerald died. Deceased was a native of Limerick, Ireland, and aged about thirty-six years. The jury returned a verdict in accordance with the facts. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 7, 1864 how among the doctors there is a nice little breeze between the practitioners who were called on in the case of ferguson said to have taken strychnia lately to end his life but was prevented by dr de castro dr elliot as a cloud of witnesses state was first called and gave up the case saying he the patient was a dead boy in other words recovery was hopeless de castro was then called and, as the same witnesses state, found the unhappy Ferguson in the throes of death. He emeticized, purged, and pumped him, till the poison had no show, and felt a little justifiable pride at his success. Now Dr. Elliot says he was not poisoned at all, that the druggist, when the patient applied for the noxious drug to kill a dog, suspected his design, and gave him some comparatively harmless preparation piperine, or something of that sort, and that de Castro was humbugged. He furnishes an analysis from chemist Dickey of the drug said to be furnished by the apothecary in proof. De Castro thinks the fact that the man was swollen fearfully, and almost lifeless when he saw him, and also the druggist Riley's statement that he did furnish the deadly article and marked it strychnia, poison, ten grains, proof more convincing on his side. Thus the matter stands. Who can decide when doctors disagree? The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 7, 1864. Attempted Suicide. Yesterday, at eleven o'clock in the forenoon, Emmanuel Lopez, barber, of room number 23, Mead House, wrote to the idol of his soul that he loved her better than all else beside, that unto him the day was dark, the sun seemed swathed in shadows when she was not by, that he was going to take the life that God had given him, and enclosed she would please find one lock of hair, the same being his. He then took a teaspoonful of laudanum in a gallon of gin, and lay down to die. That is one version of it. Another is that he really took an honest dose of laudanum, and was really anxious to put his light out, so much so, indeed, that after Dr. Murphy had come, resolved to pump the poison from his stomach, or pump his heart out in the attempt, and after he had comfortably succeeded in the first-mentioned proposition, this desperate French barber rose up and tried to whip the surgeon for saving his life, and defeating his fearful purpose, and wasting his laudanum. Another version is that he went to his friend Julian in the barber-shop under the Mead house, 
and told him to smash into his drunk after he had breathed his last and shed his immortal soul, and take from it his professional soap and his lather-brush and his razors, and keep them forever to remember him by, for he was going this time without reserve. This was a touching allusion to his repeated assertions, made at diverse and sundry times during the past few years, that he was going off immediately and commit suicide. Julien paid no attention to him, thinking he was only drunk, as usual, and that his better judgment would prompt him to substitute his regular gin at the last moment, instead of the deadlier poison. But on going to number 23 an hour afterwards, he found the wretched Lopus in a heavy stupor, and all unconscious of the things of earth, and the junk-bottle and the laudanum file on the bureau. We have endeavored to move the sympathy of the public in behalf of this poor Lopus, and we have done it from no selfish motive, and in no hope of reward, but only out of the commiseration we feel for one who has been suffering in solitude, while the careless world around him was absorbed in the pursuit of life's foolish pleasures, heedless whether he lived or died. If we have succeeded, if we have caused one sympathetic tear to flow from the tender eye of pity, we desire no richer recompense." They took Lopus to the station-house yesterday afternoon, and from thence he was transferred to the French hospital. We learn that he is getting along first-rate now. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 7, 1864 Shoplifting Lucy Adler was arrested and locked up in the city prison last night for petty larceny, stealing shoes, ribbons, and small traps of all kinds exposed for sale in shops. She brought her weeping boy with her, a lad of nine years, perhaps, and they were followed by a large concourse of men and boys, whose curiosity was excited to the highest pitch to know what was up with the old woman, as they expressed it. The officers and also the merchants say this woman will travel through a dozen small stores during the afternoon, and go home and clean up a perfect junk-shop as a result of her labors. She cabbages every light article of merchandise she can get her claws on. She always has her small boy with her, and if she is caught in a theft, the boy comes the sympathy-dodge, and pumps tears and jerks sobs until the pity of the shopman is moved and his parent released. The boy is always on hand, and if an officer snatches the woman, she pulls the metaphorical string that turns on the boy's sympathetic shower-bath and he is all tears and lamentations in a moment. At any rate, this is what they say of the cunning pair. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 9, 1864 Mysterious If you have got a house, keep your eye on it these times, for there is no knowing what moment it will go tramping around town. We meet these dissatisfied shanties every day, marching boldly through the public streets on stilts and rollers, or standing thoughtfully in front of gin-shops, or halting in quiet alleys and peering round corners with a human curiosity, out of one eye, or one window, if you please, upon the dizzy whirl and roar of commerce in the thoroughfare beyond. The houses have been taking something lately that is moving them a good deal. It is very mysterious, and past accounting for, but it cannot be helped. We have just been informed that an unknown house, two stories with a kitchen, has stopped before Shark Alley in Merchant Street, 
and seems to be calculating the chances of being able to scrounge through it into Washington Street, and thus save the trouble of going around. We hardly think she can, and we had rather she would not try it. We should be sorry to see her get herself fast in that crevice, which is the newspaper reporter's shortest cut to the station-house and the courts. Without wishing to be meddlesome or officious, we would like to suggest that she would find it very comfortable and nice going around by Montgomery Street and plenty of room. Besides, there is nothing to be seen in Shark Alley if she is only on a little pleasure excursion. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 9, 1864. Assault by a House. The vagrant house we have elsewhere alluded to as prowling around Merchant Street near Shark Alley, uh, we mean Dunbar Alley, finally started to go around by Montgomery Street, but at the first move fell over and mashed in some windows and broke down a new awning attached to the house adjoining the Ivy Green Saloon. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 9, 1864. Escaped. Mr. Powers, who was arrested the other day for writing to young girls in the seminaries over the signature of Mrs. Amelia Barstow, and soliciting their custom in the obscene picture line, has escaped and gone into hiding. He went in charge of Officer Bowen to confer with his attorney, or his confederate, and, while closeted with that individual, jumped out of a second-story window, so much so that when Bowen went after him to take him back, he was nowhere visible to the naked eye. Mr. Powers tried the same game on Officer Hess when he was first arrested, but it failed. Hess preferred that all private interviews should be held in his presence. Playing the extreme confidence game with officers is very old, and very well understood by most of them. Count Bowen among the latter class hereafter. The aforesaid counsel will be arrested today for complicity in the escape of the prisoner. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 10, 1864. Collision. A runaway buggy, at any rate the horse attached to it was running away and the buggy was taking a good deal of interest in it, came into collision with a dray yesterday in Montgomery Street, and the dray was not damaged any to speak of. The buggy was, the hub was mashed clear out of one wheel, and another wheel was turned inside out, so that it dished the wrong way. The cripple was entirely new, and belonged to Duff and Covert, California Street. In meeting a dray, or a heavy truck wagon, buggies should always turn out to one side, being safer than to go between it. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 10, 1864. The Murderer Kennedy, a Question of Jurisdiction. Judge Shepard said yesterday, with reference to the case of Kennedy, the soldier who killed a fellow soldier at Black Point on Thursday last, that he would hold over the examination for three days to give the military authorities an opportunity of making a formal demand of the prisoner to be tried by a court-martial a claim to the exclusive jurisdiction over the case having been heretofore signified by them. We are assured, however, that the military authorities do not desire to take the case out of the hands of the civil authorities, and besides, two serious obstacles might be interposed as against such a jurisdiction. In the first place, the prisoner is evidently insane, and was so at the time the murder was committed. 
Fitzgerald being, it is reported, the third victim to his terrible fits. And there is no provision of our laws authorizing a military court to act as a commission de inquirendo. And in the next place, there is a question about the title of the United States government to the property at Black Point, the title to which is now being litigated, which fact might so affect it as a military reservation as to throw a strong shade of doubt over the supremacy of the military law within those particular limits. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 10, 1864. Our U.S. Branch Mint. When the Branch Mint was established in this city, it was upon the calculation that its annual coinage would amount to about five millions. Upon that supposition, its organization as to number of officials, accommodation, and the pay of the employees was fixed. Although the coinage has about quadrupled what was calculated upon, neither accommodations, employees, nor compensation have been increased. On the contrary, the pay is now in greenbacks instead of gold, and the payment often delayed, as at present, for four months, through inefficiency on the part of someone in Washington. However, Congress made an appropriation at its last session for a new mint here, and we hope that something may come of it different from the present miserable kennel called a mint, and that something may also be done for the relief of the unpaid men and women who perform the labors of the institution. Herewith we give a synopsis of the business done by the branch mint in this city for the last twelve months. It will be seen that, instead of five, the coinage has been nearly twenty millions. Fiscal year 1863-4. Gold, $19,068,400. Silver, $468,409. Total, $19,536,809. Fiscal year, 1862, 3. Gold, $17,510,960. Silver, $1,040,638.68. Total, $18,551,598.68. Gain of 1863-4 over 1862-3, Loss of silver, $572,229.68. Gain of gold, $1,557,440. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 10, 1864. Intelligence Office Row. The names of those concerned in it are suppressed and it is a matter of no consequence anyhow, but the foundation of the fight is of interest to some, as showing how the business of intelligence offices is sometimes conducted in evasion of the law, but not in violation of it. The statute says that the keeper of the office must, in return for the money received from his customer, give him a receipt, in which the nature of the service rendered must be specified. This is done in this wise. Received of John Doe, $2.50, for services rendered in procuring him a situation as stable-boy. That is according to law, and if John Doe goes to the stable and is refused the situation, he can make the intelligence man refund his money. But the latter takes no such chances. To the receipt he adds the following postscript. 
which blocks the game on the stable-boy, in spite of the statute. If you are denied the situation, your money will be refunded upon the presentation here of a written statement of the fact of the refusal by the parties so refusing. The parties will not trouble themselves with writing communications for stable-boys and servant-girls to intelligence office-keepers, and without the ceremonious written statement, the noble dealer in occupations will not disgorge. He sticks to his contract. The result of this practice is that every day the district attorney is besieged by frantic chambermaids and blasphemous cooks and woodchoppers, seeking redress for the wrongs they have suffered at the hands of the intelligence office keepers. But they go away without it. The law is a wonderful machine, and few there be that understand it. They say it does not cover the case we have spoken of at all. This having been ascertained by a victim yesterday, he went back to his chuckling spoiler and wailed him. The San Francisco Daily Morning Call, August 11, 1864. An accumulation of copperheads. Conservative democracy and secession affiliations. The same old talk of tyranny and resistance. Last evening, some fifty persons, perhaps, chiefly of the copperhead persuasion, assembled in the Democratic Club Room on the corner of Stockton and Filbert Streets, for the purpose of effervescing a little. Conservative Democratic imaginations pictured it a grand rally of persecuted and hunted-down patriots. A rational person saw nothing there but aberrated beings, hugging the bugbear of martyrdom, and iterating the formula laid down by the secret agents of Jefferson Davis's government. We do not propose to give a detailed report of their proceedings. It wouldn't pay. One speech is a type of the whole. It is only secession and treason, modified in expression according to the rational caution and shrewdness of the speaker. Mr. Brown, the inevitable Berea, was there, of course, and of course he spoke. But as he holds the leading string of conservatism in this vicinity, the practice of extreme caution has at length almost perfected the faculty of couching treason in loyal phrases, or at least evading, with consummate tact, the danger of crimination. Mr. Brown's Speech Mr. Brown said he did not feel able to make, at that time, an effort proportioned to the importance of the occasion, for all his energies were spent in fighting their battles. He didn't go there to make a speech, but— to look into their copperhead faces, to receive the assurance that democracy was not dead, upon which equivocal announcement of the party's vitality there was a stamping of feet by several indiscreet persons. Discriminating ones saw therein a confession that copperheads were sickly hereabouts, and looked sad like mourners at a funeral. The speaker proceeded, with faultless attitude and gesticulation, and a countenance beaming with a light that is supposed to foreshadow posthumous glories of the immolated hero, to state that he couldn't argue with his opponents in the present conflict. There was no issue. If there was, he couldn't see it, didn't know how to frame an argument. Doubtless Alcatraz, frowning just in sight of his position, bothered his powers of composition. Syntax gives botheration when the soul of the rhetoric is to be something that must not be expressed, for fear of disastrous consequences. All the old issues, he went on to say, were gone. 
the conditions that formerly divided the parties and kept up the bonfires of party strife, and there was now but a single question, one which admitted of no argument, a question of brute force, whether we had a government or were the subjects of despotism. Then came in the inevitable stereotyped hobby of inalienable rights, referring specifically to a number of the propositions of the Declaration of Independence. He pointed the conservative element to their melancholy state of discomfiture, and told them there was but one thing left for them to do, that was to adhere to their principles, associate, organize, and protest. They could do nothing more. There was no argument. Then Berea put a strong case. He asked them, What if they should get up some morning and find one of their number mysteriously missing, one whom they loved, and to whom they had been used to looking for counsel, and the next morning another should be gone in like manner, and another, and another, and so on indefinitely, without warning, and no one knew whither or what end they were taken away? They would feel badly, they would gather in groups, with pallor in their countenances, and bated breath, and bite their lips with vexation. They would want to know what had become of those loved ones. It would arouse the feelings and impulses of every copperhead in the community. At this juncture Mr. Lincoln suffered at Beria's hands a comparison which we have not room to give in full, said many things savoring strongly of what opened the gates of Alcatraz, and meekly observed that what he was then uttering might deprive him of his liberties, verifying the old adage of a guilty conscience, etc. He said that the administration asked them to surrender their liberties for a time to preserve the government. He wanted to know what a government was worth without liberty. Applause. And more of the same sort. The people of the United States were then damagingly compared to Turks. Mr. Brown warned them to beware of surrendering their liberties. Liberties, once surrendered, could only be recovered at a bloody sacrifice. The price of liberty won from tyranny is the blood of the patriot. As for his part, he didn't propose to surrender. Their liberties should only be surrendered with their lives. Berea entertained his small but appreciative audience for about thirty minutes in which he adroitly exhibited the virtues of resistance to the arbitrary measures of the administration, all of whose measures were arbitrary, and yielded the floor. A resolution was then adopted by the meeting, which, as adopted, proposed to instruct the delegates from the second district to the county committee to take steps to have our citizens protected from military arrests, to apply to the governor to give us the protection of the civil law of the state. A second set of resolutions were then presented, which were somewhat rich. They conjured all good Democrats to withdraw their support and patronage from all newspapers that were inimical to their policy, and to exert their influence against the influence of such papers generally. The Morning Call, Alta, and Bulletin specifically. They followed a resolution holding up Messrs. Town and Bacon to the scorn and contempt of all good copperheads, and advising them to steer clear of their printing establishment as adverse to democratic money, because they, the said town and bacon, had prescribed good union-loving Democrats. We were in hopes that the resolutions would have passed in that shape, but the glare of inconsistency hurt Mr. Brown's eyes, 
and he hoped the adoption of those resolutions would be deferred until the phraseology could be altered so as to preserve the spirit and intent, but have the appearance of inconsistency hid in more subtle verbiage. The idea did not at first penetrate the copper-coated intellects of the club, but Berea must be right, so they assented, and the hypocrisy is to be added to inconsistency for their stomachs to receive. The president of the club then observed that some people had denied that there were any speakers among them, thereby intimating that so far the assertion had not been negatived, which made Berea think that copperheads were unappreciative and stupid, for hadn't he just sat down? And to prove the contrary, he called upon a man named Kirtland to give them a little more of the same he had favored them with before. After a little hesitation, Kirtland stepped forth, and there was a secessionist, edifying the club with the same he had told them before. We did intend to report his speech, and took some notes, but before proceeding far, he openly avowed himself a Southerner, with Southern feelings, and entertaining a Southern view of the question, and we paused. His speech was rampant, unmeaning, superficial rant, not even worthy the name of sophistry. Had it emanated from a northern man, who had any influence to fear, it would have consigned its author to Alcatraz. But, as it was only the impotent ravings of one who knew where a display of heroism would be safe, neither the speech nor the speaker challenge attention. This man was followed by a Mr. Farrell, whom we did not remain to hear. End of section 37